it's it's my dream. Uh, I hope to see that to hope to be able to see one day um, uh, what, what I would call the, the the great forest transition, where uh, you know most of our agricultural and forestry companies would now begin to be planting forests, native forests, uh, instead of, of uh, crops, uh, agricultural crops or, or, or pulp and paper plantations. That was the voice of Ko Lian Pin, a Singapore-based conservation scientist and also one of nine nominated members of the Singapore Parliament. He staked his career on identifying ways to preserve our planet's natural resources. His dream, he says, is to see agribusiness and forests in a state of peaceful coexistence. I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. This week, we take a look at the movement to preserve and protect our forests. There's a new sense of urgency in the race to combat climate change, and trees, it so happens, are one of the greatest single sources of carbon capture. Because of that, they're receiving a wellspring of conservationist and investor attention. Programs like One Tree Planted, Global Forest Generation, and One Trillion Trees are all encouraging individuals and corporations to plant and preserve forests. It couldn't have come at a better time. While the pandemic might have slowed the rate of carbon output from manufacturing and travel, rainforests were not spared. In fact, the rate of deforestation accelerated in 2020, led primarily by logging and clearing activities in Brazil home to more than 50% of the world's rainforests. Evidence suggests that love of trees alone won't stem the deforestation tide. What we need are market mechanisms that value trees and the carbon they capture and process. Singapore is lining up on the opportunity, and I spoke with Lian Pin to better understand what's at stake. But first, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the Internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, Here's my conversation with Lian Pin. Lian Pin, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Um, perfect setting. This is Earth Day. I also understand it's your birthday. Am I correct? Yeah, it's uh, it is my birthday, and uh, very happy to, uh, to to speak with you today. And and I think the world is blessing you right now with the big <laughs> rainfall just outside. We're on the uh, National University of Singapore campus, having a coffee, uh, open doors, and. It's, uh, it's pouring rain, so I don't think it'll interfere with the conversation, but uh, I think it's a great setting. Um, we're going to talk today about um, a number of things, um, but first and foremost, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, so, so I am a tropical ecologist by training. Uh, I've been uh, around the world for the last uh, 16 years or so, uh, working in different universities. And most recently, uh, I was uh, working in the U.S. Uh, until last year when I came back to Singapore uh, to join the National University of Singapore as a professor and the director of uh, a new center for nature-based climate solutions. Mm. Um, so at the center, we our research focuses on understanding the potential 
of using nature to, to help us address climate change impacts. Yeah. As we pull our way through this COVID crisis, in your opinion, has the world changed its narrative on climate change and the need for greater sustainability efforts, or has it done some backsliding? I think in general, it's been positive. Um, the COVID pandemic, I think, has given everyone uh, a chance to, to take a pause and think about what's what's been going on over the last few decades. Um, and it's also uh, given everyone uh, some sort of a, 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 a forced uh, hiatus from, from our busy everyday lives, uh, having to step back uh, and, 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 and look around and maybe think about how we could potentially do things differently in, in, in our personal lives, in business, and also in, in, in society in general. There have been um, lots of conversations on uh, the Paris Agreement, the U.S. rejoining, and uh, country commitments to reducing carbon output. Um, in your opinion, um, there's so many schemes and ideas and methods. If you were to, at this stage, given the technology we have available, our understanding, the research that's been done, what are some of the most essential things we could be doing globally in order to reduce carbon? I, I think it's, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the, the most important thing for us to do still is to decarbonize, to transition away from fossil fuels to, to renewables, um, to increase our energy efficiency, to reduce our waste. But, but I think uh, it, it's, as, as we put in our effort to, to do all of that, um, we must not forget that we still need to turn off the tap of emissions from, from deforestation because that is a, a significant source of, of our carbon emissions as well. And that's where I come in. I'm, I'm very interested in understanding how we can do that. Not, not just reducing emissions uh, through, uh, for example, protecting our forests, but also beginning to, to, to use nature through reforestation projects, for example growing new forests, growing new carbon, to start to, to sequester and remove uh, the, the legacy uh, CO2 that we had been spewing out in our atmosphere over the last century and a half. Mm. So let's talk about trees. Um, there's, there's two sides to this coin. One is preserving the forests we have, and the other one is reforesting. Uh, but there are uh, some controversies on both sides of that equation. Uh, let's take one at a time. Uh, when it comes to preserving, what are we up against in the big rainforest in the world? And, and what type of incentive programs appear to be yielding some results? I, I think in, well, the, the, the most obvious uh, challenge is uh, uh, thinking about, well, are, are the, the competing land use, right? Uh, the, the drivers of, of deforestation, what, what other uh, uh, competing land uses there are, uh, in, in the same areas that we are trying to protect the, the, the natural ecosystem. So these could be, you know, uh, for example, in, 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 in Brazil or parts of South America, they, they, they would be ranching, there would be uh, huge soy plantations. Uh, in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia, uh, we you know that there would be oil palm plantations, uh, pulp and paper plantations, and so on. So those, those threats, uh, I think, uh, are still there and uh, when we think about protecting our forests against those, thre those threats we need to also think about the opportunity cost right how to make protecting the forest uh, 
financially uh, feasible uh, and may, maybe even attractive uh, for the, the, the governments or, or the, 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 the landowners and land users uh, to safeguard them against those uh, very uh, economically lucrative uh, uh, alternative options to protection. Is the imposition of agribusiness and farming uh, simply an indication of increased demand, uh, greater population, or is it? Does it suggest that there is failure by the farming industry to do more, to be more conservative-minded? I, I think there have been various efforts to try to make our production, food food production practices and businesses more sustainable over the last you know, two or three decades. There's there's been a proliferation of uh, different kinds of certification schemes. You know, for example, in, in the case of palm oil, there is the RSPO, the, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Um, but I think the, the challenge uh, has been the weighing the trade-offs uh, between, or between the, the priorities or the, the, um, the interests of the uh, producers versus uh, the interests of the uh, conservation practitioners, the local communities, and so on. Um, and, 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 and when those different priorities and interests uh, uh, are brought together or come into conflict, um, uh, the, the certification standards uh, may be... Uh, may be watered down to some extent uh, from, from the perspective of the, 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 the conservation practitioners, at least. Um, so, so I think it has been, it has, these kinds of certification schemes uh, have had limited success in terms of protecting the, the environment, uh, or in, at least in terms of environmental sustainability. Um, but, but in many ways, they are the best thing we've got at the moment. Um, I think moving forward, there's also an increasing recognition that there may be opportunities for us to incentivize the protection of the forests themselves. So, so to actually prevent or avoid the conversion of the forest into agriculture in the first place. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's where carbon uh, trading and, and you know, nature-based solutions come in. Oh, let's talk about that. How would that work? Um, how do you link protection of indigenous or, or virgin rainforests with carbon markets? So as, as you had um, maybe alluded to earlier, um, in, 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 in the world today, there's a lot of uh, uh, interest uh, and need to, to think about climate change. You know? and, and COVID has also given us uh, the opportunity to, to think about those think about climate change more seriously um, and, and in, in recent months many com- companies and countries have, have started announcing for example net, net zero uh, targets climate targets essentially to, to reduce their emissions to, to effectively net zero uh, and what, what that means uh, in practical terms is that uh, these businesses have to both transition away from fossil fuels um, and, and also uh, think about carbon offsetting, uh, especially if the targets are very ambitious, right? if, they, if they need to transition or become net zero within the next 10 years. Uh, techno- technological solutions alone may not be enough 
to to for them to to allow them to meet those targets. And so they have to think about carbon offsetting. And, and so there is a demand uh, for companies to start looking for uh, avenues uh, or options to, to purchase carbon offsets. Um, and, and nature-based offsets is uh, it's a big, big uh, potential supply uh, for, for those demands. Can we break this down a little bit? Because, you know, in the Paris Agreement, there are certain uh, national or country commitments to carbon reduction. Are we now speaking about those corporations or organizations domained in those countries that then need to make uh, additional carbon commitments in order to meet the goals of the country? In other words, are these self-appointed ESG uh, goals or carbon neutral goals versus national goals? How do the two dovetail? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so. Each country or the signatories to the Paris Climate Agreement, they have to have uh, their so-called nationally determined contributions. This is their climate uh, obligations that they voluntarily uh, declare. Um, you know, Singapore has its own own target as well. For example, I, I think we are supposed to peak our emissions uh, at uh, 65 million tons per year by 2030 and then reduce that to I think 33 million tons by 2050 and then become net zero some sometime in the latter half of the, of the century other countries have have similar goals um, businesses most businesses have their climate goals not directly in relation or, or in, in, yeah, in relation to these uh, nationally determined contributions but rather the businesses want to do it as part of their ESG, uh, as, as part of uh, meeting the demands of their shareholders, of their uh, uh, clients and so on. And so the two are separate. Um, and the businesses would be sourcing for these, uh, their carbon offsetting options mainly from uh, the voluntary carbon market. And there's a range of different kinds of uh, carbon offsets or credits they could be looking to purchase. Uh, you know, for example, from renewable energy projects, from uh, as well as nature-based carbon projects as well. Is there consensus on those types of projects, or does every country have its own set of priorities and therefore recommendations for companies to comply with? No, there's no uh, uh, recommendations or guidelines, and it's really up to the businesses to decide. What, what they want to go for. So, so I'm hearing you say that, um, for instance, uh, let's say Indonesia, where um, the palm industry is so large, and uh, Indonesia has made certain commitments to reducing its carbon output. It is essential for them to um, work closely with the palm industry in order to encourage them through incentives or through reprimands or whatever the case may be to reduce that output. Can you give us a tangible example of where that's working, whether it's Indonesia or elsewhere, so that others can understand what it entails? Yeah, sure. So, so for example, in Indonesia, um, where, where else it used to be quite challenging for um, the oil palm plantations or forestry plantation to, to want to set aside Know, large parts of their concessions to be protected as 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 natural forests. Um, 
it is now much easier to do so and, and in fact the Indonesia Indonesian government is encouraging them to do so so um, many of the or some of the plantation companies are beginning to transition from a purely production uh, landscape to a production slash protection landscape where they set aside part of their lands uh, as you know, forest protection projects. Um, some of them are even getting those forests certified uh, for, the, uh, for their carbon uh, uh, stocks and, and potentially those carbon offsets generated from those projects can either be used to meet Indonesia's nationally determined contributions and or be traded in international international voluntary carbon markets. Mm. And this comes back to that question of certification. There have been challenges and problems with that. Uh, could you list some of those issues? Yeah, sure. So uh, from the research that we've been uh, uh, focusing on here at the National University of Singapore, we have sort of identified a typology of risks of these uh, type of nature-based uh, projects. Um, there are four of them, uh, in essence. Uh, the first is to do with um, the accuracy or inaccuracies of estimating carbon yield. Um, that's very important because if we don't know how much carbon is, 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 is stored in a, in a forest project or would be generated from a reforestation project, uh, then we don't really, we can't really have a very accurate estimate of the uh, the, the, the the carbon uh, uh, offsets generated from the project and the revenues to be and the, the amount of carbon uh, 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 financing and re re revenue that could be uh, gained from from setting aside that yeah, the credit you would get yeah, the yeah. credit that you get correct um, so that's one uh, the second one is to do with um, the uh, uh, the issue of additionality so. Uh, two weeks ago, some of your uh, audience or listeners might have read about this report published in Bloomberg uh, about how the TNC, the Nature Conservancy, one of the world's largest environmental NGO, may have been uh, allegedly selling meaningless carbon credits to some of the world's biggest corporations, including JP Morgan, BlackRock and Disney. And the reason they got into trouble for that is because uh, allegedly, they have been selling credits from forests that never needed protection in the first place. Uh, forests that were never threatened by deforestation. Um, so, so that has to do with the question of additionality. What is the actual added value of that intervention of protecting that forest? If there's no added value, then you shouldn't be able to sell your credits. Um, so that's number two. The third a uh, risk or problem has to do with permanence or impermanence of the project. Uh, if, if, a, if a forest is indeed uh, you know, under threat of loss from you know, development, uh, you know, agriculture or forestry, then the threat will always be there, right? Even after you set it aside as a forest protection project. So you have to constantly guard against those threats. And in addition to threats from development, there would be threats from um, for example, natural disasters, there could be threat from you know, governance issue, tenure issues, um, so a lot of the operational issues as well, funding shortfall and, and so on. So those, those threats can all contribute towards uh, affecting the permanence of the project. And the fourth and last uh, issue has to do 
uh, with leakage. The le so leakage is the idea that when we protect the forest here, we may be diverting deforestation or development to another uh, unprotected part of the forest or another unprotected forest altogether. So somehow we have to be able to account for that leakage effect and mitigate against that too. Well, this is so it, it sounds like you're in search of a framework, a, a way of assessing, you know, a forest or wherever it may be in the world based on those four components in order to determine not only the, you know, the value that's, that's inherent in terms of its carbon capture capability, but also the ancillary issues about, um, you know, how it might impact a local community or um, whether or not it's basically preserving the topsoil or, you know, perhaps um, there are different kind of um, weightings based on the importance and necessary of harvesting the forest in order to improve the, the economy. So lots of factors to be considered here are, are, are researchers and analysts the world over largely aligned on these four issues or is there a huge variance in terms of how we should determine the value on those uh, forests? Yeah, so so I think you can think about those issues that you mentioned in, in sort of two two buckets. Right, One is, one are the risks, so the four risks that I mentioned or the challenges of nature-based solutions. And then there are the, the benefits or the co-benefits uh, you know, by protecting the forest, we would not only uh, be able to address uh, you know, climate change impacts by either storing or sequestering carbon, but, but the forest could also be delivering many of the benefits you mentioned, the biodiversity conservation, uh, protecting the topsoil, uh, you know, sustaining the rural livelihoods of the, the local communities, and so on. So those, uh, those uh, you know, risks and benefits are still not very well uh, understood, um, especially at the regional or global levels. Uh, there have been studies at the site level, uh, but those are very uh, usually very site-specific. Um, so what we are trying to do here at the university also is to begin to, to model, to quantify and to map out all these risks and benefits across the, 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 the entire tropics. Uh, and, and I think we think this is very important to um, to inform decisions and policies uh, in, in those areas. Are you saying that unless or until that work is done and therefore um, credits can be associated or attributed to those variations, that the opportunity to carbon trade vis-a-vis -vis forestation or forest preservation is not possible? Or can we get started? No, we, I think we definitely have to get started. I'm not saying that there are no standards at the moment. There are there are standards, international uh, international standards on um, certifying these uh, nature-based carbon projects. Um, you know, I can name a few of these. Uh, there's Vera. Uh, it's a non-profit based in the U.S. There is the Gold Standard, and there are also some industry-specific standards or, or certification schemes that may be coming online soon. Uh, one of them is Corsia, which is uh, specific to the aviation uh, industry. So all of these standard, uh, stand certifying bodies have their own sets of criteria, uh, methodologies, and so on that, um, that project implementers have to adhere to if they wish to be certified under those schemes. Um, so we can definitely get started. Uh, we have to get started because we don't have much time left. But I, I, what, what I guess what I'm saying is uh, we 
need to con- continuous, continuously improve uh, on these standards, you know, improving the methodologies for estimating the carbon yield of these projects, for example, improving how we deal with the issue of uh, permanence, of leakage, some of the risks, um, and, and also on the other side, um, improving our way of maybe internalizing some of the uh, the core benefits of these nature projects. Because at the moment, for example, the value of biodiversity is not really reflected or internalized in the price of carbon pro- uh, price of these carbon credits. A one ton of carbon from a pristine rainforest is 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 priced the same as one ton of carbon from a, a monoculture plantation. So that doesn't make sense to me because we intuitively know that a ton of carbon is from the rainforest is so much more valuable. So we are uh, we, we need to be able to to, to price this premium. Uh, to have to somehow you know quantify the price premium of of this uh, perhaps what we can call beautiful carbon versus the uh, monoculture carbon. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that that's the that's the that's the ideal. Uh, that's that's what we are hoping to achieve. Yeah. I like the aesthetic qualification, and and you're right. A true tropical virgin rainforest is spectacular uh, on so many fronts, but it is in terms of its ability to capture manage carbon highly efficient and and so when when you some of the uh reforestation projects around the world that have failed in places like turkey and mexico you know these mono uh forest uh, approaches have and in many cases the trees haven't been uh cared for and they're they die and the, the whole project falls over and somebody along the way is benefited how do you do you set up an international body to come in and oversee or approve or is this the uh, room for a new consulting industry that can pop up around this in order to support uh, countries and organizations that are trying to do the right thing? I, I think there are various uh, pressure points that we can look to applying uh, pressure to, to, to improve uh, how, how things uh, progress. Uh, so at the, at the certifying, at the standards body level, so the standards uh, for example, Vera as as the one of the certifying bodies for the in in the in the voluntary carbon market, um, by raising their standards, by improving their methodologies, uh, they can help to improve the, the quality of these nature-based carbon credits or offsets. I think another important pressure point is uh, at the level of the uh, exchange, the the carbon exchange, for example, the the actual trading hub, if you will, where uh, supplies of carbon would be traded through uh, to reach the, the buyers. So I think carbon exchanges are very important uh, in, in, in increasing the, the transparency of, of how um, where the carbon is, is, is being sourced, um, transparency about the, the quality of the carbon, uh, whether they are certified or not, to what extent they, they are certified under which certification uh, scheme um, and, and also how these carbon uh, credits might be priced differently uh, based on their, the degree to which they have met certain standards. Um, so, that, so that's the other important uh, pressure point to, to apply. Singapore is a small island nation. Uh, it's not uh, lush with forests um, but surrounded by them. What is the, I think you're alluding to the role that Singapore hopes to play in this this carbon market 
as it relates to uh, forests and, and, and other sources. Um, what is that looking like? And, and is it important in this day and age to have a uh, physical hub? Or are we living in a virtual world where, whether it's traded in Singapore or New York or London or Miami Beach for that matter, it doesn't really matter? What do you think? Um, so yes, you are right. Uh, Singapore has an ambition to be uh, a global trading hub for climate-related services or carbon-related services. Um, but I think Singapore is well-positioned uh, to be a global trading hub for various reasons. And one, one key reason is our proximity to a potential, potentially uh, large and, 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 and stable supply of, of high-quality uh, carbon credits uh, in, in our region. Indonesia is, is there's still a lot of natural ecosystems, intact natural ecosystems in Indonesia uh, and Malaysia and other parts of, of Southeast Asia. Um, there's a lot of uh, potential for rehabilitating and re restoring parts of the system that have been perhaps degraded over the, the past few decades. Uh, and all of those things can, can generate a, a large supply of carbon offsets that, that Singapore can help uh, to to ensure the quality of uh, and, and supply them to the, the buyers that need them. Yeah, the um, corporations can get involved both indirectly and directly. Indirectly in terms of the carbon offsets, carbon trading, um, you know, carbon credits. But they also, there, there appears to be this movement among some organizations in purchasing directly tracts of land of, of virgin rainforests and other areas, if only to protect them in the near term. What are your thoughts about that? Yes, I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's true. That's a trend that I've been observing as well. Um, big corporations essentially cutting out the middlemen and going into um, you know, parts of the, the, the tropics and buying up land and either protecting the standing forests or growing new forests uh, on degraded lands. Um, I think that's potentially becoming a new kind of uh, development, if you will. Uh, but instead of developing housing or hotels or resorts or plantations, we are developing nature, essentially. Um, I, I think that's that's very promising. And, and in fact, it's, it's my dream uh, I hope to see that to, to hope to be able to see one day um, uh, uh, what, what I would call the, the, the great forest transition where uh, you know most of our agricultural and forestry companies would now begin to be planting forests native forests uh, instead of, of uh, crops uh, agricultural crops or, or, or pulp and paper plantations and, and, and again the only value in that is you can trade the carbon, but you can also develop tourism, uh, a hospitality industry, a greater appreciation for, you know, the, the, the natural beauty and the forests that we have. Um, where else is there advantage? I mean, in terms of local communities, I guess the, the again, we mentioned before the ancillary effects of uh, soil preservation and everything else that comes along with biodiverse environments what are the other incentives out there for organizations or countries in order to pursue something like that? I think by protecting the forests or growing new forests on, on those lands, um, there's a very direct 
there could be a very direct benefit to the local communities, especially in our part of the world, uh, which essentially is a very archipelagic region, lots of island, uh, islands and lots of coastlines. Um, and a lot of the uh, coastal communities would benefit from the protection of, for example, their mangrove forests or the, the restoration of the mangrove forests, because they, many of them depend on the mangrove forests for, for, for their food security. Right? They, they fish, uh, they sell the fish to their local markets for cash and so on. So by by having these big investors uh, come into those areas and restore or protect the mangroves, that's a very di direct uh, transfer of benefit to, to the local communities. Liam Pin, what else can corporations do if you were to task them with getting more involved? What would that look like? Um, I think they could invest in addressing the some of the risks of of carbon trading or, or carbon projects and carbon products that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, in terms of permanence, leakage, additionality, and so on. Uh, those issues are very real and they are uh, currently, they are the biggest hurdle to the uptake of, of carbon uh, trading and carbon uh, offsets, uh, nature-based carbon offsets that I see in the market today. So. Um, so I think I think they have a part to play to help to resolve those issues by perhaps investing in research and development uh, to overcome uh, to to address some of these knowledge gaps. Do you believe in in at least in this part of the world in Southeast Asia that governments are effectively mobilized to put in place the right regulations and guidelines in order to encourage private sector participation in reforestation and forest preser preservation? Yes, I, th I think the regulators play a very important role um, because otherwise we would see more of the uh, uh, the, the example the example I mentioned earlier, where people where some companies might be selling meaningless, fraudulent uh, carbon offsets. Right? So regulators have, a, I think the the way the role that regulators have is to set high standards for uh, you know, for the trading of this commodity, um, and, uh, which which will uh, incentivize uh, businesses to, to, to maintain those standards um, and, and prevent a lot of the uh, fraudulent uh, uh, problems and, and also reduce the exposure of, of companies and businesses and, and even the communities on the ground to, uh, to some of these risks. Well, the uh, rain has stopped, the sun is coming out, and on this Earth Day and your birthday, I want to wish you a very happy one and a very happy future. Thanks for all the great work you do, Lian Pin, and I hope we can keep the conversation going. Thanks very much, Steve, for the, for the opportunity and for having me. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to hearing uh, more, more and more fantastic podcasts from, from you. That was my conversation with Ko Lian Pin. Director of the Center for Nature-Based Climate Solutions at the National University of Singapore, and also a nominated member of Parliament. While the conversation offers hope that finally the world is waking up to the problem of deforestation, it also points out how much more still needs to be done in order to certify, value, and protect forests from the onslaught of population creep, over-farming, and natural disasters. 
Planting trees alone won't restore the world to a state of carbon neutrality, but it will help. Reduced reliance on fossil fuels, better management of livestock, and clean manufacturing are all necessary in order to meet the net carbon goals as established and ratified by the Paris Agreement. Some say we should spend more time on carbon capture technologies. The know-how has existed for decades. Adaptation, however, is lagging. Some say the price is too high. Others suggest that governments could do more to set standards and enforce the law. Clearly, better regulations can make a difference. But even when combined with forest protection, the question remains, is it enough? Calculating the risks and rewards of this endeavor is tricky business. As Leanne Penn points out, there are many factors that need to be accounted for. He mentions four specifically. The first, an accurate means of calculating a forest's potential carbon yield. Second, what he calls additionality, or the ability to assess the risk and reward of forest protection. Third, project impermanence, and the need to provide ongoing and not just one-off planting and protection. And fourth, what he calls leakage, which speaks to the diversion of resources from one project to the next. In other words, it's important to choose projects carefully. It may all sound a bit technical, but it's part and parcel of building a comprehensive means of assessing the inherent value of reforestation that can be verified and assessed by financial markets. In its most basic form, it's like biting into a gold coin to make sure it's real. I haven't actually done that, but it makes sense to me. It's the same with trees. Build a comprehensive view on the carbon capture potential of a forest based on its location, makeup, and contribution, and traders assign value to it. Once sanctioned by government, it's game on. Everyone wins. Forests are restored, communities thrive, corporations offset their carbon, and investors make money. Best of all, we all get to live on this planet just a little bit longer. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share this podcast and others with friends and colleagues. We're nearly 180 episodes in, and all our conversations are available free of charge. All you need do is subscribe by searching for Inside Asia wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion. Provide links to additional insights and articles and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening. Music